Good morning. Let me go ahead and get you to open up your Bibles. Turn on your phone, whatever it is that you, wherever you have your Bible, and go to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Today, as you see here on the slides and around, we are continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. So if this is your first time with us today, we welcome you, and our prayer is that you will find God and find God in the face of Jesus Christ through the Word of God as we look at it here today from the Sermon on the Mount. A very special passage of Scripture, one that has occupied a very special place in the history of the Christian church from the very beginning. More commentaries, expositions of the Sermon on the Mount than most any other passage of the Bible in the early church. And throughout the history of the church, this has been a key passage. We're kind of working our way through. We've been through chapter 5. We're now well into chapter 6. And today we begin looking at one of the most well-known portions of the entire Bible. This is probably, if you maybe did not grow up in church, or maybe you're visiting today and you haven't been in church much at all in your life, I would imagine that of all the places in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, Revelation, not Revelations, just a little note, but from all, on all of Scripture, from the beginning till the end, I imagine that this may be one of those passages that you've at least encountered somewhere along the way. The Lord's Prayer, or probably more properly, the disciples' prayer, because it is not the prayer prayed, uh, it is not the prayer of Jesus. We know at, at the core that that's not the case, because it, Jesus talks about in the prayer, forgive us our trespasses. We know that Jesus had no trespasses. He was perfectly sinless. But I think that the priorities and purposes of the prayer were part of Jesus' prayer life. And as he came to that portion, reflecting on the forgiveness that he would bring to all of mankind. But properly, this is the disciples' prayer because it is the prayer that Jesus holds out for those who are his disciples, those who follow him. And he introduces it in verse 9 of chapter 6. So just look there briefly. Verse 9, pray then like this. Now, historically, the Lord's Prayer or the disciples' prayer has been something that has been recited. We tend to think of it as a, a, an object of recitation. We tend to think about the form of the Lord's prayer itself. And so it has a liturgical place. And this is uh, perhaps uh, often practiced in a very valid, healthy way. But one of the problems with that is that it misses, not the problem with that intrinsically, but one of the problems of, of associating the Lord's Prayer with that, and especially if you do it exclusively, is that Jesus does not say pray this prayer. Jesus says pray in this way, pray in this manner. And then we get the words that we find in the Lord's Prayer. It's a model. It's a guide. Some commentators have called it a skeleton a skeleton upon which you hang your prayers. As you pray from the heart to your Father, you hang those on this skeleton, which gives us the priorities and purposes of God, our Heavenly Father. And over the last month or so, we have been going deeper and deeper into the topic of prayer. This is something that has come up now for about four weeks. And Jesus has given us two pictures of what we are not to do in prayer. He's given us two very vivid images. The first image is of the hypocritical Jew. 
the image of the religious leader, the scribe or the Pharisee, who goes to God in prayer in an ostentatious or showy way, who goes to God in prayer in front of other people so that other people will look at him and praise him and say, great job, you're very holy. You're such a religious guy. I want to be just like you. So that's the first image of prayer that Jesus brings to his disciples and he puts a big red X on it. He says, absolutely not. That's not the prayer of my disciples. That's not the kind of praying of those who belong to me. Not this showy, hypocritical, performance-oriented kind of prayer. That's the first image. The second image that we have encountered as we've, as we've been going into this topic of prayer is the pagan unbeliever. We had a very vivid uh, picture of that last week with 1 Kings chapter 18, where we get that story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. So the prophets of Baal go out and they, they, they're trying to invoke their god Baal and they spend all morning calling out to him, raving about, saying the same words over and over again. And it's that kind of prayer, that meaningless repetition, that vain praying, that sort of empty, thoughtless, mindless form of prayer that Jesus also holds up and he says, that's not it either. So he puts a big red X on that. So no showy prayer, no thoughtless prayer. And then he says, but you, my disciples, don't pray like this, don't pray like that, but pray in this way. And that is where we come to verse nine. And one of the things that is fascinating if you've just followed the text so far, before we even get to today, one of the things that is very interesting is that at the center of Jesus' comments, even so far, about prayer, there has been this wonder, wonderful word, Father. We've already seen that, and we haven't even gotten into the Lord's Prayer yet. So we saw that in chapter 6, verse 6. Look at that verse. Verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is prepping us for the Lord's Prayer there. And then in verse 8, do not be like them. Now he's talking about the pagan unbelievers. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. So, so here's what I want you to see. At the heart of it, the difference between the prayers of the pagan unbelievers and the hypocritical Jews and the disciples of Jesus is essentially this, father. That is at the heart of the distinction. That's what lies at the core of this contrast. On the one hand, all wrong forms of prayer. There's no father. And right prayer has at the heart, Father, Abba, Father. If we understand this in light of all of the teaching of the New Testament, we come to him as Abba, Father, this Aramaic word which suggests Daddy or Papa, perfect intimacy, personal relationship, Abba, Father. So, it should be no surprise to us that when we come to the model prayer, which we have here today, it begins with this address, our Father in heaven. 
should be no surprise that that is the address that we bring as we come to God in prayer. His fatherliness has already been seen in his caring for our needs, verse 8. And his rewarding us, verse 6. His heavenliness has already been seen in his seeing in secret, omnipresence. And his knowing things before we ask him, his omniscience, as we see in verse 8. So in a sense, we could just stop. We've already gotten such a wonderful picture of what is meant by the words, our Father in heaven, before we even come to them. As Jesus has just been introducing us to this topic of prayer. Nonetheless, that's what we're going to take up today. These words simply the address, our Father in heaven, verse 9b. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask for his help to understand these incredibly wonderful and meaningful words. Let's ask God to help us pray, even as we leave here today, even as we're in this service, in the way that Jesus has laid out for us here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we come to you this morning as a holy God, our holy Father. What a privilege it is to exalt your name in prayer. What a privilege it is to bear your image as we pray and as we live out the Christian life. As we worship you here together this morning, as, as we were singing these songs this morning, and as the voices could be heard around us and on stage, and as we followed the meaning of those lyrics, we considered the exaltation of your great name. As you said in the Old Testament with Israel, that you were with them for the sake of your great name. Not because they were righteous, but because of your great name as the saving God. And you are with us on account of your great name. And Father, we pray that this church will exist for the glory of your name and for the outworking of your kingdom and for the completion in our lives and around us of your perfect will. Father, we know that you are working you are always working. You're working in every life. Every person here this morning, as we gather to you, to, together to you in prayer, we address you now as a body in this corporate prayer. We recognize that you are working in our lives. God, you were working in our lives from the moment. Before, before we were born, you predestined us, as you tell us, before the creation of the world. You have been working in our lives essentially from before time began. And even now, Father, your will is being worked out in every heart. And we praise you for that, God, that you do not leave us to ourselves, but that you work in our church collectively and in each individual life. You provide for us, Father. We're grateful for that. You've brought us to this place today. You have given us food to eat. Even now, as we are here together, you give us microphones and instruments and seats and a roof. You give us things so that we might gather together and worship you today. We thank you, Father, for all of your provisions. And we thank you for your mercy, which you have given us. The greatest provision of all, that you have taken away our sin guilt before your face that you have changed our hearts, that you have removed a heart of stone and put in us a, a malleable heart of flesh upon which you write your holy law. God, we praise you for your mercy. 
We ask that you will sustain us in our spiritual lives, that you will protect us from evil, that you will be with us every moment of every day, that you'll protect the work that you're going to do in our hearts this morning as we come together around your word, that you won't allow Satan to snatch away the word as it goes out and begins to be seed in every heart. Father, we pray that you will accomplish your purposes today for the sake of your great name, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title for the sermon this morning is Addressing Abba. Addressing Abba. And these words of address, our Father in heaven, really, as I went through it this week, and of course you know that intuitively as you come to words like these, our Father in heaven, you know that they just explode with meaning. But as I was reflecting this past week on these, just these four words, it's amazing how much we find in just such a short, small space. And so I have quite a bit to to share this morning, I think, from this text. I want you to see at least seven considerations. Jordan, you can go go ahead and, and put up the slide. I think that this, these words, our Father in heaven, Just this address alone point to seven considerations, at least, and as I said, this is just scratching the surface, but at least jumping out at us, there should be seven things that we consider just as we enter into prayer with God, our Father in heaven. These words point to at least these things. So these are the seven things that we're going to go through this morning. The first, the rest of the family. Secondly, the relationship of the son. Third, the right of the adopted. Four, the readiness of the approach. And then the reverence of the speaker, the relief of the needy, and the resemblance of the child. Now, we'll say this. We certainly don't consciously process each of these as we come to God in prayer. But here's the hope that all of this becomes so much a part of the DNA of our lives and so much a part of our praying that we can't help but to say the words, our Father in heaven, without these things just exploding in our minds, without all of these great truths just being brought to bear and driving us into prayer. Or you could see it this way, holding our hands as we have this image of a father, holding our hand and walking us through prayer Everything sort of rippling out from or emanating from these words, our Father in heaven. Some have said that if you get these words, that's it for prayer. Abba. Everything in prayer is there in that one word. And that all the majesty of God's grace is found and housed in that one precious word, Abba or Father. So let's look at the first of these. The rest of the family. The first thing to consider is this little word, our. We pray, our Father in heaven. Now you will notice if you've done the membership pledge or if you've just gone to come to the membership class or you have filled out, assigned a membership covenant, you will notice that the introduction to our membership covenant reads in this way. To be a member of Four Corners Church is to be part of a family. As a member of the local church, we are part of a family. And as a member of the universal church, we are part of a family. 
And so throughout the scriptures, we find this kind of language. Fellow Christians are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Small b, small s. Christ is our brother, capital B. He is the brother. We'll talk a little bit more about that. And God is our heavenly father. So our brothers and sisters are always there with us as we come to God as part of a family. Here's the main thing I want you to see. As Christians, we never pray in isolation. Never. 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 We always pray as members of a family. The rest of the family is always in view. And I think in some ways we can apply this in various ways. Think about it as you, as you pray alone by yourself, as you go to God. Quickly, we want to say, my Father. Very quickly, we want to do that. And then we want to launch into this very narrow view of things that has to do with our lives, with our circumstances, with our troubles. We are concerned with me. We are concerned with ourselves. And that's normal to a certain degree. We come to God with our personal concerns. We come to God with our personal salvation. We come to God and we ask for things from him. We come to God and we personally adore him. So there is certainly a place for my Abba, right? There is that personalization of the Christian life of God as father, that God is in fact the father of every one of you if you're a Christian of every single one of us. And there is that one-on-one connection that always exists for those who are Christians. Nevertheless, we never pray. We never pray as individualists. We pray as individuals, but never as individualists. And I think that we could, we could apply this, we could, we could extend this implication-wise out to the family. Think about it this way. I've been convicted of this in our kind of time together as a family in the word and in prayer. Are we only praying about our family? What are our kids hearing when we're at home? Let's say we do pray at home. That's kind of a first step. We do pray at home. But when we pray at home, do they see this kind of inward focus that is exclusively essentially focused on me because in some ways when we gather as a family and pray only about our family we are essentially praying only about ourselves because these are the people who matter most to me these are the people whose lives mostly affect me and so the question is do we operate as our father as we address God even in the context of our family prayers and I think we can extend this even further to our church Do we see Four Corners Church as just this isolated body of believers, this isolated local church? When we say our, yeah, we mean each other within Four Corners. But what about our more largely conceived? What about our as we reach out beyond this street, as we go to the other churches in Noonan, to the other churches in Coweta County, to the other churches out, 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 all the way to the ends of the earth? that we are brothers and sisters of, in Christ to all believers. One way to consider this is that prayer does not merely include intercession. Think about it this way. In fact, I read one commentator who, who was reflecting on the Lord's Prayer and saying that, well, we really don't have intercessory prayer in the Lord's Prayer. Wrong! Our 
Father, if you think about intercessory prayer, if you think about prayer as compartmentalized, and it's like, okay, I pray for myself now, I pray for my family now, I pray for my church now, and you just sort of go out, you ripple out from self to intercession, that's not the way I think we should conceive of prayer. Instead, our prayers are interlaced with intercession. Our Father, our bread, our debts, our temptations, our need to be guarded from the evil one. We always pray in light of the plurality in the family of God. So that's the first thing I think we have to see as we go into this address, our Father in heaven. The second thing to see is the relationship of the Son. I want to draw your attention at this point to this word, Father. Not our Father. Wait, wait. Just the word Father alone, standing there. And here's why. When we see the word Father, we should not jump to sons and daughters. We should not jump to sons. We should jump to the Son, to Son. The New Testament is clear that Jesus Christ is the only unique Son of God. I just want to read you a few passages here to kind of make this very clear to you. John 1.14 says this, And the word... The Word was in the beginning, the Word who was with God, the Word who was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, or the only unique Son, that Word meaning only unique Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in John 3.35, Jesus says this, The Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And then we see the Annunciation. The angel comes to Mary and tells her that she's going to have a son. He's going to be great. He's going to be a king. But the angel says this to Mary as well. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And throughout his ministry, Jesus repeatedly addressed God as my Father. My Father, my Father, my Father. As he prayed to the Father, the only unique Son. He is the eternal Son of God, always. Eternally begotten is the ancient way of referring to it in the early creeds. Eternally begotten, not made. Eternally equal with the Father. He is the virgin-born Son of God. Not a single one of us is virgin-born. Not a single one of us was born in this miraculous way. As the Holy Spirit came upon the womb of Mary and conceived in her a child who was the very Son of God. He is the virgin-born Son of God. This is a category of one. That's what you have to see. That's what we have to see. That when we say, our Father in heaven, it is derivative. Because Son, properly understood, is a A category of one. 
And in fact, Jesus says this in Matthew eleven twenty seven: no one knows the Father. Listen to this. No one knows the Father except the Son, the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So here's what I want you to see. This is the main idea. When we pray our Father, we should immediately be brought to consider the Son of God, the Son of God. What I want you to think is this. As we're praying our Father, immediately the cross of Christ should appear right in the middle of that word, our Father. Never praying apart from Christ. So let me ask this question. Do you appropriate God as Father without being mindful of the Son? We can fall into this. We can just go to God and we can have this very familial kind of in our own minds, this very familial relationship with God as we see it. So we think, just, talk, just have so much intimacy with God, yet we give no thought to the cross work of his Son to the identity of his son, I would submit to you this, that to pray from the heart, our father, is to have such a robust Christology. It is to have such a robust understanding of who Christ is, that that is what it will mean throughout our lives to pray, to see the glory of Christ unfolding at every turn. That is what it means to call God father. So I ask again, do you appropriate God as father Quickly, without being mindful of his precious, only, unique son. And as we consider the son and his saving work, that brings us to the next point, the right of the adopted. So now we need to look at these words together. Or maybe I could say it this way, now we get to look at these words together. Once we have considered father, and we considered the uniqueness of the relationship between the Father and the Son, then we can begin to understand how it is that we, the disciples of Jesus, can come to say our Father when we approach God. If the Lord's Prayer is one of the most familiar passages in the Bible, John 3.16 is probably the most familiar verse. Most kids learn this verse pretty early on. If they're coming to church, and most people see this, we, we see this verse all over the place. It's, it's on billboards even. You get on 95, for example, example, and you'll see this. You see it even referenced with sports players and others. This is a very well-known Christian verse. It's kind of a nutshell of the Christian faith. But here we see the father giving up his only unique son to bring many sons to glory. So it says this, John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And we are told in John 1, 12, just before we get to this verse, that this state of not perishing, this state of having eternal life, is also one in which we belong to God as his children. So to have eternal life, and Jesus says this in John 17, to have eternal life is to know God and Jesus Christ, to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And so we also have this idea of knowing God in this very intimate relationship as his children. So here's what it says in John 1:12. To all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The right. Galatians 4 says that we have received adoption as sons. 
not the only unique sons, but we are adopted as sons and that God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Think about that for a moment. Apart from the spirit of Jesus, the son in us, Paul will say in Romans 8, if you do not have the spirit of the son, you do not belong to him. That apart from the spirit of the son in us, uniting us to himself, crying out, Abba, Father, there is no relationship with this father. None. There's no our father without the son, his saving work, and his spirit imparted to us that his spirit, the spirit of adoption, the spirit of sonship, might cry out in us, Abba, Father, insofar as we are united by faith to this Jesus Christ, this Son. So through faith in Jesus, we are, ado- we are the adopted children of God. This is now our right, it says. This is our authority. This is our privilege. So let me just ask a couple of questions here. Do you consider this a privilege? I mean, I think in theory we would all say yes. I call God Father. This is, this is a privilege. But I think so often we consider this a very common thing. Let me ask it this way. Do you see God as being the Father of all people? This is something that you'll hear often in political speeches or you'll just hear even religious leaders will use this kind of language that God is the Father of us all. Well, there is some truth to this. We know from Acts 17, as Paul is talking to the Athenians on the Areopagus, and he says to them, he, he affirms for them that we are all the offspring of God. And what he means by that is that we are all created by God, that we all have our origin in God, from whom are all things, he will say elsewhere. So in a real sense, everyone is an offspring of God in that they were made by God. Who is your maker? We teach our children to answer that question. Who made you? God made me. But see, there's something deeper than that. The fatherhood of God through faith in Jesus Christ is the only means by which we say Abba. That intimate connection. Not just a creator and the creature who has rebelled against the creator who is a child of wrath before that God, but a child whose sins have been removed, who's been reconciled to that God. And we get the image of the father with the prodigal son. What does that father do? He runs out after that son and he wraps his arms around him. He shames himself even, forgiving his son putting a ring upon his finger and reinstating him into the family. That is the relationship that only Christians have. And so consider this. When you evangelize, when we tell people about the Christian faith, when we hold Jesus Christ out before people, do we encourage them to embrace a father whom they do not know? Consider that. All the people whom we know and love who aren't Christians, who don't know the Lord, they do not have a heavenly father. We need to know that. I think sometimes we just pray for them in very general ways as though, well, you know, God will look after them kind of thing. But what we need to understand is that those people whom we know who don't know Christ do not have a heavenly father. They are children of wrath. So the question is, do we hold out for them that in Christ, 
they can be reconciled to this God and can get up on his lap and say, Daddy, Daddy. That, I think, is what we're holding out for people when we hold out Christ. And this right to be called children of God is not merely a status. It is a continual invitation. So that brings us to our fourth point here, the readiness of the approach. When we read these words, our Father, we must also consider, as we've talked about already, how personal and intimate these words are. These words are. For those of you who have small children, as I said last week, we hear them say, Daddy, or, you know, one of the words that, we, that, that has been used to, to, to kind of plug in here with Abba is Papa. We hear them use this kind of language, and as fathers, we hope that our attention is turned to them in love, in a kind disposition, when we hear that call, Daddy. And here's the main thing I want you to see at this stage. God is always there, and we can always approach him. Think about it this way. When we say, our Father in heaven, what we are affirming is that there is a perpetual, continual invitation. Do you see God in that way? Do you see God, you know, we think about in ancient, in ancient Judaism, there were times of prayer. And so Daniel prayed three times a day. He would go and he would talk to God in these very specific ways. But I would imagine that Daniel is praying to God all day long. He's communing with God. He's talking to God in this very intimate relationship. And so the question for us is, do you see a personal invitation always being given from the Father to you from day to day? From the time you wake up in the morning that there is a Father, that there is a heavenly Father who is there turned towards you, inviting you to come to him and to sit on his lap and to say, Daddy, to say, Abba, that that is happening moment by moment. There's never a moment in which that's not happening. Imagine that. Even in the wake of sin, Christian, even in the wake of sin, see, here's what Satan does. Not only is Satan the tempter, but he's also the slanderer. He does two things and he does them so well. He drives us to sin and then after we sin, he drives us away from God. He drives us to sin and then after we sin, there is that opportunity to be reconciled to God. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God is there as Abba. He does not cease to be Abba when we sin. He invites us to confess, to repent, and to come to him immediately. Father, Father, forgive me. But Satan wants us to be mired down in guilt. So maybe that's you this morning. Maybe there was a time when you called out Abba. And you had that kind of intimacy. You had that readiness of approach, always coming to God, a willingness and an eagerness to pray. And now in your life, perhaps because you have been involved in some things that are unholy, you've gotten mired in sin, or maybe you've sinned in the past and you feel as though you've just been discarded by Abba. That's not the case. He never discards his children. And I think this reminds us of something too as fathers. We never discard our children. It is part of what it means to image forth Abba as fathers. 
And think about it, this is amazing. As we, in the wake of Father's Day, as we think about all the implications that the scriptures give us for, for fathers, all of the teaching that we find in scripture about fathers, how much better of a meditation would there be than to consider how the Father treats us, even in our failure, even in our sin, even in all the ways that we disappoint him and are unfaithful to him and are lacking in commitment to him, yet he perseveres with us. He has forbearance with us. He's patient and loving and kind and encouraging. He disciplines us. This is how we are to be as fathers. And I think this is a good time to say that earthly fathers fail us. And here's the thing. Those of us who are earthly fathers or starting out as earthly fathers, we will fail. (laughs) We will fail We are not Abba. We, in the power of God's spirit, every day can wake up and seek to image Abba, to be like him, asking for grace by God's word to obey him as fathers and be good and kind and loving and to discipline our children. But we will never be perfect like Abba. We want to point them to the only father who will never fail them. The only father. Not us. So maybe as you encounter this idea of the fatherhood of God, there's so many negative things that flood into your mind that you can't even pray. Because you say, our father, and immediately you get an image of your father. And maybe your father did not act as as he should have acted as you were growing up. Maybe he did not love you in the way that he should have loved you. Or maybe he was passive and did not discipline you in the way he should have disciplined you. Maybe your father is in no way, shape, or form an image of this Abba. My suggestion is to rediscover what fatherhood means in the word of God because he will show us his character. Even though we have very fading, imperfect pictures of his character in our world, his word gives us a splendid portrayal of his fatherly love. You know, there's never a moment in which he takes a break or turns us away. The father is never just kind of as, you know, the prophets of Baal were calling out to their God and Elijah was mocking them and saying, maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he went to use the bathroom. Essentially is what he says. Maybe he's relieving himself. That's not our God. Our God immediately listens when we say, Abba, yes, yes, my son, yes, my daughter. Our readiness to approach is built upon his readiness to listen every day. And here's the thing. If we only pray to Abba when we feel like we are children of Abba, here's the thing. We sometimes don't feel like children of God. We sometimes don't feel like our sins are forgiven. Sometimes we just don't feel like Christians. We just, I don't don't feel it. I don't feel it. We don't feel it. There's no emotion. There's hardness of heart. And that is when by faith we call upon Abba. The emotions don't have to be sparkly for Abba to hear. He hears whether we feel it or not because of his son and because we belong to him. Even if we don't feel it for a long time, he hears it all, every single word. But there is one glaring error that could be made at this point. 
And that leads us to the next point that we have here on the slide, the reverence of the speaker. You know, it's amazing. The wisdom of Christ is amazing. You see it at every turn in the Bible. But Christ does not just say, pray like this, our Father. He says, pray like this, our Father in heaven. We don't simply address him as Father in isolation from his heavenliness. And this tells us that in approaching him, we must never dethrone him. Think about that. If your notion of God's fatherhood dethrones him, then it's not the right notion of fatherhood. It's not Christ's notion of fatherhood. He is always Abba in heaven. He is always Abba, God, Lord, Master, King of all things, Creator, Sovereign, Lord, God. He's always both. Do we call out to him and dethrone him. So how might we do this? Maybe just put this on the ground a little bit, think about it practically. What are some ways in which we could maybe be doing that? We could be praying to him, our father, and have this really filial notion of God's fatherhood of us, but we're dethroning him all the while. How is it that that could happen? I wanna just give you a few here. One of them, is seeing past his glory and holiness to our needs. Remember at the end of last week's sermon, we talked about how we have a tendency to take the Lord's Prayer and to invert it and then erase the bottom portion. So we have the the glory of God, we have adoration, and then we have asking. We have adoration and we have consideration of God's glory and his kingship and his perfect sovereign will. And then we have our needs, physical and spiritual. And what we have a tendency to do is to invert these things and to pray through all of our needs. And then we just kind of forget about God's glory. We just kind of forget about God's kingdom and his sovereign purposes in the world. And what I would say to us is this. When we do that, we are dethroning God. He becomes then a mere servant of our needs. He becomes just someone who pampers us. So we think. And so we become angry with God. We don't get what we need. You see the theology behind that? We pray that way, and then that's the reason we get angry. We say, God, why? 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 Is that a part of your experience? Maybe it's for this reason. Why, God, why? Won't you meet my need? Why won't you change my circumstances? Why won't you change this person in my life? Why, why, why? Maybe it is because we have dethroned him. We see past his glory and his holiness to our needs. That's idolatry because it still has self as God. Still worship of self. But God is gracious. There's not a day when we're not idolatrous. There's not a an hour in which we do not worship the idols of our hearts, yet God is gracious to us. He's kind to us. He forgives us. And one day will we'll envelop us entirely with the glory of his son and we will forever be perfect worshipers of God. That's incredible. There will never be any more idolatry. But here we see it, how often we dethrone our king, put ourselves on the throne. Get down, God. That's my seat. 
Another way in which we do this, I think, is presuming on his kindness while continuing in sin. Think about it this way. How often do we pray to God, Father, 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 and we're just sinning. We know that there's sin in our lives. We know that that God is saying to us, stop, stop, stop. And we continue. And yet we think, Abba, Abba, Abba. That is to dethrone God. That is to trample on his fatherliness. That is to trample on his fatherhood, on his love, on his kindness. That is to presume on him as though he is nothing. His holiness is nothing. He is not God. He's just someone to meet my needs and be there when I need to talk. He is the prescription for my loneliness, but not my king. Not the king of heaven. The king of the armies of heaven of the host of heaven. Not that. And thirdly, confusing readiness to speak with carelessness in speech. Think about it that way. How often do we maybe say, well, I'm just so open with God because I know him so well. Oh, he's my father. I talk to him all the time. I just talk to him while I'm washing dishes. I talk to him while I'm sweeping. And that's good. That's good. I talk to him at every stage in every way and I just have such familiarity. That's wonderful. You know, is that Brother Lawrence and practicing the presence of God and just everything being referred to him, every little tedious task, every little mundane happening of the day being referred to God in prayer, that is the life of a Christian. So I am not in any way undermining that. What I am saying is this, Ecclesiastes 5.2, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So this kind of flabbiness of mouth that we oftentimes have when we come to God in prayer, stream of consciousness, Abba, that's not biblical prayer. We may, we may mistake that for familiarity. We may mistake that for intimacy and say, I'm just so close with God. We just talk all day long. But it's not that. The fact may be that there is a, a lack of understanding that God is the king, our heavenly father, and that every ounce of our being should be engaged when we talk to him. Every part of our minds and every part of our hearts and our very bodies engaged with him. That does not mean, of course, that we can't pray with him. Every moment of the day. But it does mean that we must be thoughtful and it must be heart wholehearted. Our prayers of familiarity must always be accompanied by reverence and awe. That is essentially what I'm saying. Reverence and awe of Abba. That is what Jesus holds out for us. The reverence of the speaker. And as we come to the, towards the end here, I want you to also see the relief of the needy. Now that we have considered each of the parts, our Father, our Father in heaven, we've considered each of these parts, it's important to put it all together. Let's put the whole thing together. Our Father in heaven, what does this tell us? Two important things come beautifully together. God cares and God can. He cares and he can. Listen to the description of it, really hard to find any, any better description than this from Lloyd-Jones. 
as is frequently the case. He says this, put these two things together. God in his almightiness is looking at you with a holy love and knows your every need. He hears your every sigh and loves you with an everlasting love. Christian, listen. He desires nothing so much as your blessing, your happiness, your joy, and your prosperity. Then remember this. Then remember this. That he is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. As your Father which is in heaven, he is much more anxious to bless you then you are to be blessed. That's incredible. Oh God, I want to be blessed. God wants to bless us so much more than we could even fathom in his wisdom though. Not in the way we want to be blessed. The way we ought to be blessed, need to be blessed. There is also no limit to his almighty power. He is a God who cares. He is a God who can. And there's one thing that we know for certain about our lives, and it's this. We are a needy people. We are incredibly needy. In fact, as Jesus introduces the idea of God as Father, he even says, he knows your needs before you ask it, or you ask him. We are a needy people. And one of the things that these words, our Father in heaven, holds out for us is that God meets our needs. As the God who loves us with an undying, unmatchable love. And he is a God who can do anything he wants. Anything. He is entirely able and capable to change our circumstances. Think about it that way. You have circumstances in your life you don't like. God can change those in a moment, in a moment, but he doesn't. You say, well, he doesn't because he doesn't care for me. No, he doesn't because he does care for you. How often do we find, even this, think about it this way in our lives. How often do we find that when we don't have any money in the bank account, or when we get a troubling diagnosis that may be this, but we don't know, we have to sit on it for a little while, or whatever, or when maybe relationships in our families fall apart, how often have we seen it over and over and over again that this drives us onto our faces before God? How many times have we seen God's joy in moments of crisis? How many times have we seen his power in times when we felt like we couldn't even get out of bed or our knees were so weak there was no hope? And we've seen him, we have felt him, we've experienced him reach down and lift us up. That's, that's frequently why God lets those things happen. Because our greatest need is faith. Our greatest need is worship. And we don't have faith or worship when all the things go right and we're just sailing along in life and everything's happy. It's when things are difficult that we find the refining of our faith as Peter talks about, refined like gold in a furnace to the praise of Christ when he returns. That is so often what God is doing. He knows what we need. Remember this, Jesus in John 17 prayed this, that we would not fall away, that we would not fall away. And remember in John 10, what does Jesus say about the Father? He says that the Father 
has us in his hand and no one is able to snatch us out of the Father's hand. Nobody, not even the devil. And how is that? Because through our circumstances, through our lives, as his spirit works, he holds us tight in faith. He keeps us in faith. And sometimes that means many, many trials. One day we will understand. One day we will, but now we must trust him as Abba. He can and he cares. At the very beginning of our address to God in prayer, we are reminded that God knows our needs and he meets them. Let me give you these two passages of scripture. Philippians 4:19 and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Whatever you need, God will supply it. If you really need it, he'll take care of us. He promises. Ephesians 1:3 he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3, he says, "Look up to heaven. Keep your mind, set your mind on things above where Christ is. And when Christ appears, we also, that our life is hidden with Christ. And when Christ appears, we will also appear with him. In other words, everything we have, all of our imperishable inheritances is seated with Christ. It's as though it's in him. He has it in his hand. And one day he's going to come back and he's going to give it to us. It's already there. We're already blessed immeasurably and eternally. And we know that God meets our needs in various ways. Physically, give us this day our daily bread. Spiritually, we are poor in spirit and God gives us what we need. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what does God say? We will be satisfied. And he does this perpetually. As I said before, John 10, 29, no one is able to take us from his hand. He will carry us as Abba through this life, through the hour of death to his presence. As we finish up this morning, I want to go to number seven, the resemblance of the child. There are so many more things that could be said on this address, our Father in heaven. So many more things. But as we finish up this morning, I want to consider one final facet. Our father reminds us of the saying, like father, like son. Like father, like son. And in heaven reminds us what this character is. It is otherworldly. Hear this. It is otherworldly. It is holy. It is distinct from all that we find around us. Jesus makes this point numerous times, even in the preceding verses. He says, be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. Then he says, love your enemies. Why? Because your father causes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust. He causes the rain to come down on the just and the unjust alike. The father loves his enemies, so we all also ought to love our enemies. When we pray, our father in heaven, immediately we should think, to the end that we be like him. Let me say it this way. When we read Abba, when we read Father, we have the image of God inviting us to approach him and to speak with him. And here's what I want you to see. When we see these words, our Father in heaven, we also have another invitation. It is an invitation to come to God in order that we might be like him. 
not just to speak with him, but to be transformed into his likeness. So here, even in the address of this model prayer, we find a call. As Jesus says in Matthew 5, 48, to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Glorious Father, Holy Father, even Jesus, your perfect Son, addresses you as Holy Father. John 17, Holy Father. Father, we pray this morning that you will invite us freshly to experience your fatherliness. Father, we... We don't come as sons and daughters because of so many things. And Father, we ask that you will invite us freshly today onto your lap, as it were, Father, to look into your face and to say from the heart, by the Spirit, looking at Christ, Abba, Father, help us. Father, forgive us for our sins. Forgive us when we dethrone you. Forgive us when we fail to see you as our Father. We fail to trust in your care. We fail to trust that you will meet our needs. And forgive us, Father, when we fail to be like you. Father, help us be like you in this dark, debauched, depraved world, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.